that's where curiosity can overcome that because what we discover is once we've built a repertoire for ourselves, our minds very readily sort the information of what we hear. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Do you know that feeling when you've learned a new word and suddenly you encounter it everywhere? I remember it as a regular occurrence in the throes of those fifth and sixth grade spelling lists and definitely in SAT prep. This week's theme is a little like that. An alert listener sent me the digital newsletter, The Art of Noticing by Rob Walker, which included an article about something called open-earedness. She thought it would be a great topic and the quoted professor an excellent guest. And I thought, oh... There you have it, the inside scoop of how inspiration happens. I seize good ideas with gleeful abandon. So academics use the term open-earedness to describe our willingness to explore new music. I've come to think of it as kind of the musical equivalent of open-mindedness, at least a close kin to curiosity. And of course, I now see matters of open-earedness everywhere. In the space of five days at the Chautauqua Institution, I heard a Puccini opera, Bruckner's Symphony No. 4, a classical piano master class, the a cappella group Chanticleer, a small improvisational jazz group, and Melissa Etheridge. Melissa Kirsch at the New York Times, once a self-described indie rock snob, just wrote about rethinking her decades-long disdain for the Dave Matthews Band. And... Working my way through the band's list for my son's wedding, I noted my rather disappointingly generational biases. I've started to ponder how open-earedness first manifests, how it evolves, how it might be cultivated or recaptured. Tim McHenry is a professor of music at Australian Catholic University. In fact, the aforementioned professor with some expertise in this area of open-earedness. He's a music researcher, composer, and educator. His recent work includes a study of the ethical practices that inform music practice in Australia, and he joins others with academic rigor and journalistic flair with a periodic, and I might add, terrific column for theconversation.com. So welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me, Lynn. It's really great to talk. Oh, it's such a pleasure. So, okay. Let me jump straight to the chase. Tell us more about what open-earedness is, because I just love the word, and I think I love the concept even more. Well, it's one of those sort of academic terms coined to try and capture an idea that I think all of us readily understand and observe in our lives, but perhaps don't fully recognize what dynamics are at play. So open-earedness is a willingness to engage with unfamiliar music willingness to explore, a willingness to listen to it without a whole set of preconceptions informing what we think we're going to hear. And look, there have been lots of studies that examine behaviours when it comes to music listening. There's one from 2013 with 250,000 participants. And, you know, some of what we learn is not particularly surprising. Young children (laughs) are very open-eared. They are very willing to listen to whatever music surrounds them. Whatever their parents, their carers lead them to listen to, they're happy to engage with that. 
Open-earedness declines a little bit through adolescence, but music listening becomes targeted in particular uh, sort of ways and modes as uh, adolescents, you know, explore and sort of ravenously consume music that helps them navigate their world. There's an increase in open-endedness in our our 20s as we come to maturity, and then it declines across our lifespan. Now, what's really interesting about this phenomenon is when these research results are presented to the wider world, the response is often anger. It's, that's not me. Uh, you know, I, I, I am still open to music. It's just that these types of music are bad. Uh, and so we've got all of these different motivations uh, gathered together. And so what I would say is this is population data. This is not one person's story. Okay. This is a story of human beings in crowds. And, you know, if indeed our response is, I'm open-eared, it's just that there's all this music that's terrible, then maybe we're not as open-eared as we think. So that's interesting because in reading a little bit about this topic in the last week or so, I came across something that Ben Cicerario, the music reporter at the time, said about you're sort of defined as much by what you dislike Mm. as by what you like particularly in adolescence. And it sounds like we never really let go of that. I think that's, that is a really sort of good and important observation. There's a tribalism to yeah. uh, being an adolescent uh, in order to, first of all, differentiate yourself from your parents, which is an important aspect of maturation. There needs to be boundaries. And music is a great way to create boundaries. It's a great social marker. But even within social groups, uh, we get these kinds of differences. I like this band. They like that band. We could never understand each other because our aesthetics are so uh, wildly different. And, of course, you know, is it the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones? Is it ABBA versus Kiss? Is it Taylor Swift versus, I don't know, uh, <laughs> she's, she's everywhere else. right now. Uh, <laughs> In the Australian pop charts, uh, Taylor Swift literally occupies the top 10 spots. She's a phenomenon. But anyway, uh, you, you you take the point that uh, tribalism is at play with music. And is it our taste at work? Are we actually making a, an aesthetic judgment or are we using it as an identity marker? And you've you've talked about and written elsewhere about musical preference being sort of a function of familiarity. You, I think you cited some really interesting research that infants infants display an affinity to music they heard in utero. Holy cow. So we get imprinted. Indeed. And look, th- this is not my area. So I'm simply ciphering uh, material that I have read. Uh, I find it amazing we're able to to find out all of these sorts of things in terms of recognizing, you know, a mother's voice and, you know, responding positively to, uh, you know, things that, that there's been exposure to previously. You know, there's this in- interesting phenomenon of perfect pitch, and I, I don't know if this is true, but this, this no- notion that we all have it. Uh, and that we all have it because it's a survival mechanism in order to be able, as an infant, to know, you, you know, uh, to be able to identify difference, to say th- these are my right, parents right. and no, these are not my parents. These are strangers in the context of other senses, such as vision, being extraordinarily limited. Uh, and that some of us maintain perfect pitch, but most of us lose it. Um, it's fascinating that, that that would be the case, but that sound music, uh, the context where we heard it imprints itself on us is really clear. And um, the learnings from neuroscience about what is it that 
drives our taste. And it's strong feeling, it seems. It's intense feelings that when the music is listened to in the context of intense feelings, it creates strong bonds of memory that stay with us. I do remember seeing, outside of even this context, research around just that, about a correlation between listening to music and memory formation. And of course, there's this fascinating stuff, right, about people with Alzheimer's who don't remember anything, Mm. but they can sing you all kinds of songs. And so it's obviously tapping into some really deep pathways within our brains. That's pretty amazing. It is. And I think it's different parts of the brain. You you know, what our music therapists are able to do in terms of helping stroke victims rehabilitate, where the part of their brain responsible for language is is damaged. Uh But something about music lodges in a different part of the brain. And the music repertoire that that person has developed through their life can be used to create simple catchphrases, simple lines that allow them to communicate in a simple way. The the example I heard one music therapist was the the Beatles song, Let It Be, that if Let It Be had been a really important song to them, you could take the tagline and say, I want tea, and therefore be able to communicate the fact that you want to drink something. I mean, what what Uh, a marvel that we could, you know, use music in that way. That's so interesting. So so connect that to curiosity. I mean, what do you think? Is there a connection there? Do you feel like there's a relationship? What do you see? I think there's definitely a connection. So as I mentioned with open-earedness, the social circumstances of adolescence put upward pressure on our desire to explore music. It, it you know, it's it's more complex to say teenagers are interested in music. It's more complex than that. There are all kinds of circumstances that surround the teenage experience that allow them to explore music. One is positive social affirmation of having a musical identity. Another right. is time. They have time. Whereas people, you know, adults with jobs, with responsibilities, with, with, you know, carers roles, there is not time in the same way. The brain is absolutely forming and therefore, uh, you know, that probably is a function of curiosity. But what we see is that throughout our lifespans, it needs to become a choice. So continuing to listen to music needs to move away from the kind of affective domain of using music as medicine, using it to manage mood, using it to generate pleasure and and become something that is more habitual, more deliberate. I listen to music because I am interested to generate new experiences and something about, you know, not being averted by an initial lack of pleasure. That's where curiosity can overcome that because what we discover is once we've built a repertoire for ourselves, our minds very readily sort the information of what we hear. So within seconds of hearing a piece of music, we will judge a few things. Mm. We'll judge what genre, what style, what instrumentation, and whether we are familiar with it, whether we like it. And, you know, We've all had that experience. It's, it's not so apt anymore now that we've moved to streaming rather than radios. But the experience of flicking through a radio station to find something you like. How long do you stay on one radio station? Oh, you know, nanoseconds. It's often seconds or, or less. That, that's right. That's right. And so there's a similar thing going on with you know how we audition music. We make a snap judgment. And that snap judgment, it's useful. 
useful yeah. in the sense that that's how we that's how we navigate a complex world by by learning and being able to make judgments quickly but when it comes to using that skill in relation to music it becomes limiting and so the curiosity element needs to be deliberate needs to be a cognitive function I love it. The show airs on non-commercial community radio stations, all over which are often vehicles for a wide array of music, right? Rather than being a station where you know the certain kind of music you want, that's where you're going to go. You kind of never know what you're going to get in smaller community radio stations. One of the things I love about them. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and my guest today is Tim McHenry, music researcher, composer, and educator. We're talking about curiosity and the concept of open-earedness. So I want to pick up on something that I heard you say in an interview someplace else about making your taste subject to your intellect. Mm, And this goes back to what you said a moment ago about choice and about what I would describe as a curiosity practice, right? A decision that you're going to push out and against maybe what's familiar, what you imprinted on as a 17-year-old, you know, guilty as charged. Talk to me about that because I thought that was a really wonderful sentence. Oh, thank you. Yes, I can lay credit to that one. I coined that one. And I I remember the circumstance where where I devised it. I was teaching undergraduate students at my university. It would have been 13, 14 years ago now. And I was encountering a lack of curiosity. I was encountering people looking at the repertoire that they were engaging with as, you know, pre-professional musicians and saying, oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. And it was limiting for them. Because, you know, as a professional musician, success or failure rests in your capacity to adapt and change. If as a professional musician, and I have observed this in some of my colleagues, I locked myself in my own youth, then my expiry date as a professional is, is quicker than we could possibly conceive. So for their own benefit in terms of learning, but also to support them in having a career that had a degree of longevity to it, you know, coined this phrase. And, you know, as I discovered in my own research, it's very much backed up by what we understand. For a long time, we thought taste was kind of fixed, that that in our adolescence, something happens and it crystallizes. And in fact, the more recent research shows that that theory is, is not sound. Taste is malleable. We can shape and inform our tastes. We can expand it. We can adapt it. Um, We find that we move on and that what we once liked becomes embarrassing to us. And there are various drivers to that. So, for example, if we look back at our youth and realize that some of our behaviors were suboptimal, then we might actually look at the music of our youth and feel the same way. Uh, So there are all these sorts of things at play. But the point is, our intellect shapes our destiny. And if we can use our decision-making capacity to say, I will deliberately undertake a certain set of behaviours, we can change, we can adapt. And here's the thing, music is designed to generate pleasure. If our musical taste, you know, becomes ever smaller as we age and as the music of our youth sort of isn't part of the world that we can't 
you know, control um, the world that we experience when we go into the cinema, when we go into public spaces, then life gets harder and joy is, you know, becomes harder to find. But if we could explore deliberately and create new experiences and expand the taste, then our capacity to experience joy and to understand other people is expanded too. And that seems to me to be a useful thing for all humans to engage with. Holy cow. Well, a way to make the argument for choosing to be curious about music for like all the reasons on the planet, which which actually reminds me of something that you wrote. You wrote a really nice piece in the conversation about the importance of being present, both to hear and to see classical music, which I thought of as an expression of embodied curiosity. And it makes me think about sort of all of the ways that you maybe touch on kind of how to bring curiosity to music, how to sort of seize that choice that we have to make our our music life, our joy, you know, something of our own crafting. What are the things that you think we can yeah. do that lead us that way? You know, in terms of experiencing new types of music, and in that article, I absolutely wrote about classical music but there are all kinds of corollaries with just different types of music just you know modes of music making that we're less familiar with our contexts and going in with knowledge assists you i think about travel you head to the airport and it's a discombobulating experience but if you know the order that you've got to do things in if you've got some idea that you need to turn left at this point as opposed to right then the experience might still be stressful and time-consuming, but the experience is more manageable. Something similar is at play with experiencing music in new environments. So the first basic principle is that there is a difference between consuming music through a streaming platform or listening to it on a recording. Nothing wrong with doing that, but a lot of music, particularly classical music, is not designed to be listened to in that sort of setting. An orchestra, think, think about where the word orchestra comes from, the sort of uh, ancient Greek semicircle for the purposes of, of drama. And the, the setup of an orchestra uh, is designed in a way to project sound to an audience. The, the construction of, you know, the number of instruments we have, it's about gener- being a sound generator to fill a space. And so one needs to be in that space in order to fully comprehend the totality of the experience and there are visual elements there are drama elements as you see the conductor perform and there's the social element of enjoying something with other people or experiencing something with other people the example i use for students is is a, a comedy film it's hard to find a good comedy you know hard to find something that people collectively enjoy and if you sit in your living room watching a comedy you might enjoy it but you also mightn't laugh that much whereas if you go and see it in the cinema laughter is infectious and yeah. the experience is uh, enhanced by virtue of being with others the same is true of music so being able to navigate the space what am i expecting how will people dress how will they behave this reduces anxiety and allows you to focus on the task at hand which is enjoying the experience knowing something about the music helps you to process what it is you're engaging with so a, a symphony to someone who knows nothing of symphonies can be a confronting experience they can be long. The changes seem Confusing. arbitrary. Uh, indeed. And, and some knowledge of the composer is playing a game with thematic material. 
those themes will be presented. They'll interact and then they'll recur. And if you can understand something of that game, you can start to appreciate the artistry of what's happening and you can, in a small way, keep track of, you know, what's happening in the music. Like watching a football game, you know, um, we have Australian rules here. I'm not a big sports person, but I do understand how Australian rules works, how it's scored. I look at American football, I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) You keep stopping all the time. I I don't know. We don't stop in our game. You keep stopping. Why do you keep stopping? Now, if I went to one of those games and I understood why you keep stopping, I'd probably enjoy myself a little bit more. But it's the same phenomenon as it works. So it's that curiosity ahead of time to be able to, again, optimise the capacity to engage with the experience. I like this idea of curiosity as a kind of pre-gaming, you know, as a, a little curiosity in advance goes a long way when you find yourself in this otherwise unfamiliar context. So you mm. just talked about a very Australian thing, and I want to shift gears pretty abruptly to ask you about a piece that you wrote about cultural cringe. Mm. I mean, you're going to have to describe it, but I heard this and I thought, well, this is also about kind of going back to this question of what do we judge and where are we allowing ourselves curiosity or not? So flush that out, if you would, because I think this is a really interesting concept. It it, it is. So I'm not aware of how common that term is in America. It's, It's a very Australian term. And what it refers to is the notion that there are centers of culture that determine quality, that determine what we value as being significant, meaningful, weighty, and so on. And Australia exists on the periphery of a larger network of cultural practices and functions and repertoire that emerges out of Europe. So uh, Australia is a, a kind of, you know, we, we never had a revolution like you guys did. We, we, we sort of um, uh, became a, 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 a sort of country of our own, but there were always strong bonds with, with Britain and, you know, membership of the Commonwealth. And throughout our history, there's this pattern of two things, importing culture, Okay, and in terms of our own artists and musicians and and writers, a, a pattern of travelling overseas to become trained, to become established, to become recognised, and then either staying overseas or returning. And it was the act of seeking the affirmation of the centre of cultural power as a kind of prerequisite for being accepted in Australia. Uh, And this understanding that everything Australians do is somewhat second rate until it has that sort of stamp of approval. That's the cultural cringe right there. The idea that we do our own artists down because we cannot understand value unless it operates in the modes of understanding determined by others. And as an Australian, I could always only ever be on the outside looking in. I rail against that assumption. Good culture is to be found everywhere and one must constantly devise new metrics and measures to understand how quality operates in any genre, in any style, denies us the capacity to understand ourselves. Wow. Well, and what a profound, I mean, bringing it full circle on on our topic, you know, what a profound in curiosity. Mm, indeed, and quality exists in all kinds of different spaces, and we must resist that uh, assumption that there is some kind of 
singular truths emerging out of one tradition against which all other traditions must be judged. So that's the cultural cringe, and it's still at play in Australia. I think uh, America, that's not the case. The sort of cultural polarity shifted and America became the exporter of culture as opposed to the importer, and it's a very different story. So maybe there's hope for Australia yet, huh? Is that what you're, that's my takeaway. Well, uh, I- indeed, it's predicting the future is a dangerous game, but, you know, one one hopes. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Before we run out of time, I want to invite you into my big jar of wannabe analogies. Are you game for this? Absolutely. Okay. So I have literal big jar. I have slips of paper in here uh, with random words on them. I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for the audience, and we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. Okay, yours is an envelope. How is curiosity like an envelope? And mine is isolation. Uh, You want to go first or you want me to give it a go? All right, so I I use just envelope. I don't use isolation. You use just envelope. Okay, so curiosity is an unopened envelope sent to you from the past, sitting unopened in the present. I love it. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what's in it? I love it. So isolation. Um, well, um, I think isolation can be a, a very fruitful time um, if we allow it to sort of percolate in the way that I think curiosity uh, is fruitful when we allow it to percolate. And I think isolation allows us to be very much ourselves. Mm. There's nobody else around. It's just us. And I think our curiosity is a very personal thing as well. I think we have sort of a curiosity fingerprint, if you will. And, um, And spending some time in the uniqueness of isolation of our curiosity, um, it's revelatory. That's what I'll say. I don't know. And audience, yours is kitchen timer. (laughs) (laughs) Curiosity like a kitchen timer. (laughs) Let me know. Social media, hashtag analogy. Well, Tim, this has been great. Thank you so much. I feel like I have a whole new way of going about my days. Thanks to you. Well, my pleasure. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. It's been great to have you here on this fine non-commercial community radio station. Be sure to show them your support. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Many thanks to my guest, Tim McHenry. Links to him and his work on my website. And three cheers for Justine Ickes for putting Tim on my radar. Links to this creative coach and mindful optimizer on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. This is Pixel Hatra by The Fence via Blue Dot Sessions. I confess, ever since I read Tim's article, I've been conscious about how much or whether I listen to new-to-me music. The week at Chautauqua notwithstanding, the answer is not much. So I've used this as an opportunity to be a little more intentional in that regard. And here's a little curiosity practice from Tim. Ask a friend for recommendations. You'll be more likely to listen. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious and go listen to some new music while you wait.